Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology Geocast of Review podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and this week we have a special guest host. Who are you again? Hi, my name is Faye Kai, and I'm a maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. We asked Faye to come on to talk because she knows pregnancy as an obstetrician. <laughs> and I've recently had a few times where I have needed to ask an obstetrician various things in terms of treating patients who are pregnant. So, you know, Faye graciously accepted my invite to come on to talk about the many ways that pregnancy should affect your decision making when treating ophthalmic problems. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. She's also, she's also my wife. It <laughs> <laughs> has an excellent podcast herself called Kriogs Over Coffee. So really, I had no choice but to come on to the podcast today. No, she had choice. She had choice. <laughs> we have an equal relationship. I also had no choice when I came on to her podcast. So, um, okay. So we're going to talk about, like, in terms of an outline of different things to know, there's like three major topics we'll do. One is the basic to remind us all of the basic physiology of pregnancy and how that can affect ocular structures, ocular blood flow, and things like that. Then we'll talk about any limitations about doing eye exams during pregnancy for patients, in addition to what medications that we can use when either examining or treating patients. And then lastly, we'll talk about how pregnancy affects what procedures or surgeries we can do during pregnancy and when it's ideal time to operate should you need to. Okay, do you want to start with Pregnancy physiology? Sure, absolutely. What changes in the human body? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I f- at first I thought I would just talk about pregnancy physiology in general and how that's different from normal human physiology and what changes. And then, of course, I will relate it back to the eye, I promise. So we'll talk about some physiologic changes in the eye that can occur. Okay. Um, so first of all, some key things to remember for systems outside of the eye in pregnancy, cardiac output and systemic volume can increase by as much as 30 to 50%. And so by the end of pregnancy, especially blood vessels can swell and blood vessels can also become very friable. And the reason that we care about this as surgeons is that we know that pregnant women are harder to intubate because of those increased swollen blood vessels in the back of the throat, as well as the friability of those blood vessels. And so you can imagine trying to intubate a pregnant patient, first of all, it's very difficult to see. And second of all, you're much more likely to cause harm um, when putting in your ET tube and causing bleeding in the back of the throat. Mm -hmm. So it's not only for the baby that we don't like to do general anesthesia for pregnant patients. It's also... Absolutely. And you'll see that for um, most surgeries, for example, a C-section that we do right at the end of pregnancy, we really do prefer to have pregnant women have spinal or epidural anesthesia if possible. Obviously, if we have to, to save a baby's life, we will do general anesthesia, but certainly a regional anesthesia is preferred. Another reason why uh, we don't necessarily want to intubate pregnant women is changes to the pulmonary structures. So total lung capacity decreases very slightly towards the end of pregnancy, and that's because there is the growing pregnancy and increasing um, intra-abdominal pressure that pushes up onto the diaphragm. The woman does compensate by having expansion in the ribs that allows for the lungs to expand that way. Overall, though, minute ventilation actually increases because of increased tidal volume um, due to increased respiratory rate. 
As you can imagine, with this increased intra-abdominal pressure, pregnant women can also be harder to ventilate, especially if you're thinking about doing laparoscopic procedures, which, you know, you guys wouldn't, but potentially in general surgery. Someone's in trouble if we're doing lap. But. <laughs> right, right. You never know with COVID, though, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In terms of the GI system, there's increased laxity in smooth muscles and sphincters, and this is because of the effect of the hormones progesterone and relaxin. And so particularly, we care about the lower esophageal sphincter and the fact that there is going to be delayed gastric emptying. So we really want to make sure that if you're doing a procedure in a pregnant woman, that unless it's an absolute emergency, that you are making sure that they adhere to those MPO um, instructions. Mm. And then finally, just some interesting things. We know that in terms of the immune system, cellular immunity decreases, but there's no changes overall in immunoglobin numbers. And finally, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, which is a really important thing to remember if you are operating on these women or these women for some reason are coming into the hospital and being not as mobile as they normally are for a long time. You just want to make sure that because of the decrease in fibrinolytic activity, as well as increased venostasis in pregnancy, that you're giving these women prophylaxis when it's indicated. That is a lot of medicine I have not thought about in a long time. <laughs> right. That was like really, like it just tickled old parts of my cerebral cortex. Thank you for the tickle. Yep. So I, I said that I was going to bring this back to the eye, which I know is, you know, the only organ that you actually care about. So here we go. In terms of the eye, physiologic, not pathologic, but physiologic changes in pregnancy is that one, there can be increase in pigmentation around the eye or in the face in general. This actually occurs in multiple places around the body and is triggered by an increase in estrogen, progesterone, and melanocyte stimulating hormones. So I don't know if there are medicines in ophthalmology that you guys use that can cause discoloration of the skin, but I want to caution you guys and let you guys know that in pregnancy, you know, potentially that change, that darkening of the skin is not pathologic. So it's it's not, you know, due to a medication or anything like that. So there, there is a medication, uh, the prostaglandin analogs like latanoprost that we use for glaucoma that can increase pigmentation around the eye and the skin around the eye, as well as within the eye, actually, such as the iris. Yeah. There are certain things for pregnancy that can actually affect vision itself. One of those things is that pregnancy and pregnancy hormones can actually affect tear film physiology and lead to dry eye. There's multiple theories as to why pregnancy causes dry eyes. Some believe that it has to do with certain hormonal modulations. There's also a thought that maybe there can be an immune reaction to the lacrimal duct cells. But also, especially in early pregnancy, this can be a side effect of nausea, vomiting, hyperemesis that leads to overall dehydration in early pregnancy. Hmm. And then some other things that are interesting is that as we know, for pregnant women, they can get swollen in other parts of their body, their feet, ankles, calves, but actually there can be swelling within the lens and even the cornea of the eye. And so this can lead to changes in the curvature of the cornea and may cause blurry vision and even a myopic shift. And so again, if you have a pregnant woman coming to tell you that all of a sudden her glasses don't work as well, or they want something like LASIK, it's much better to reassure these women that most of these changes will likely go away after the postpartum period and to wait to operate or to do something like LASIK until after the pregnancy for blurry vision. Yeah. And that is a board's review question for everyone. Like you, the strict contraindication of doing LASIK is if a patient is pregnant because you will definitely be off. And just one like minor note on the refractive shift. I mean, like 
I absolutely agree that pregnancy can induce a, and is likely to induce a refractive shift of some kind. And it's usually myopic, as you say, but in theory, it can actually be um, like a hyperopic shift uh, sure. or even a stigmatic shift too. So I would just, you know, broadly remember it as a refractive shift, um, mm-hmm. though you're right that usually is myopic. Right. And then the last thing that I thought was really interesting when I was doing my research for this episode was that there can be up to a 20% decrease in intraocular pressure during pregnancy. What? Yeah, I, which is quite a bit, it sounds like. You know, I, I don't really know very much about intraocular pressure, but that does sound oh. like quite a bit. Um, again, mechanisms behind this is pretty unclear. Um, as you can imagine, there's not a ton of randomized controlled trials on the eyeballs of pregnant women. Um, but the mechanisms that have been proposed include increased aqueous outflow, lower episcleral venous pressure due to decrease in systemic vascular resistance overall, and also possibly lower scleral rigidity due to an increase in tissue elasticity, which we had talked about before, you know, um, progesterone and relax and kind of relaxes all of your tissue in pregnancy. So, so just because your uterus relaxes and stuff and your pelvis relaxes, it may lower your intraocular pressure? <laughs> I mean, I don't Dude. know if that's exactly what's going on, but that's certainly a mechanism that has been proposed. So overall, this may be nice for patients who come into pregnancy with glaucoma because, you know, maybe this would be enough to make them come off of their medication during pregnancy. Um, and then one other note is that you should still use normal intraocular pressure cutoffs during pregnancy. Like, don't lower them just because someone is pregnant. Right. It's still, a, like, it's not an artifactual lowering in their intraocular pressure. Right. Their intraocular pressure is generally lowered. Mm-hmm. And so listen up, all you glaucoma hooligans out there. If your medications aren't working for glaucoma, just prescribe pregnancy. And you can lower their intraocular pressure. And. Uh, Another as tool, the, tool bag. <laughs> Sit down, select the plastic. I, I don't think I can, I can put my name what's, behind that. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Just get pregnant. And again, remember, it can decrease up to twenty percent, not will uh, decrease up to twenty percent. That sounds like Timbalal to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks for that review of yeah. eye and systemic physiology. What's next for us to talk about? So next, I thought I would talk about some of the pathological changes that can happen in pregnancy, like how pregnancy can cause worsening of existing eye pathology or even cause eye pathology. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was diabetic retinopathy. I don't know about you guys, but in OB, diabetes has become a bigger and bigger problem. We are seeing more and more patients with pre-existing diabetes that become pregnant kind of in a two- fold reason. One is that there is an increasing incidence of diabetes and obesity in this country, and also because some women choose to wait until um, they are uh, a later age to become pregnant, and so are more likely to have comorbid conditions. Diabetic retinopathy is something that is pretty common, um, especially in women who have pre-existing diabetes that haven't been really caring for their blood sugars very well. And honestly, it's probably one of the major reasons why that OB is sending that patient there to to see you. You know, usually we're not sending the patients who have gestational diabetes, which is just diabetes diagnosed during pregnancy, but usually it's going to be someone who has long standing type 2 or type 1 diabetes. 
And this is because during pregnancy, diabetic retinopathy can pro- progress and worsen very quickly. Of course, the d- this depends on many factors such as glycemic control, comorbid hypertension, and the degree of retinopathy at the beginning of pregnancy. In patients with non-proliferative DR, the retinopathy findings during pregnancy can have up to a 50% progression. The nice thing about this is that some of this progression will actually regress once the patient delivers and gets past the postpartum period. However, in severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, 5 to 20% can transition to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Yeah, that's really bad. Right. And there can be a progression of up to 45% in patients who actually have um, proliferative uh, retinopathy. So these women may require exams more frequently during pregnancy. Sometimes the OBs may send them to see you every trimester. Of course, it's up to you guys how often you actually want to see them, but sometimes they may even need to be seen every month depending on the severity. And this is the part where I feel like I'm going to plug in a little bit about prevention, which is I think that every single doctor, not just OBs and family medicine and internal medicine doctors, should take a look at their patient when they come in. If you have a patient who is of reproductive age, it may be prudent to ask that patient, especially if they, if you're following them for diabetic retinopathy, hey, are you planning on getting pregnant in the next year? Because if this woman looks like they could be heading for a laser procedure or they may have uncontrolled diabetic retinopathy that needs further treatment, it's better to try and treat that um, and get it under control before they become pregnant when we know that the retinopathy can progress and worsen. Yeah, just to speak to that a little bit from the retina perspective, if, you know, folks remember, and well, I keep putting off doing an episode on the early treatment of diabetic retinopathy study, ETDRS, but if you remember from that study, basically the thing to remember is only treat with panretinal photocoagulation, this laser treatment that Faye just talked about after they've converted to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. But there is some data to suggest that it's equivocal whether you need to treat someone when they have very severe, not just severe, but very severe NPDR, um, you know, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So, you know, in my opinion, if someone is, you know, pregnant or soon to become pregnant and they have very severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, those are the people where, you know, while they may have been borderline and someone who is not pregnant, that would tip them over for me. And I think it's very reasonable to, to treat them at that point. Yeah. You know, one thing I also wanted to ask that I struggle with in um, in pregnancy is we love to look at A1Cs to get a rough feeling for, um, right. you know, you know, severity of someone's diabetes and the risk of progression. But I've been told by someone very smart, you, that I shouldn't look at A1Cs the same way. How do I interpret those now? Yeah. So I, I don't want to say like in pregnancy, the A1C is going to lower by X amount of points. But because of increased renal clearance in pregnancy, the hemoglobin A1c is going to be artificially low in someone who is pregnant. So obviously, you know, if you're getting a hemoglobin A1c and they're four weeks pregnant, that's a little bit different than if they were 32 weeks pregnant. I would probably still trust that A1c at at four weeks pregnant um, a little bit more. That being said, you know, usually what would happen is if this woman is getting good care, they're usually paneling their blood sugars, meaning getting four or more blood sugars a day during their pregnancy. And so what you can do is always ask them to bring in their blood sugar logs for the last week, last month, whatever it is, and you can actually review them yourself. That's that's a little bit of an ask. 
of an optimal. Just but but <laughs> we should persevere, friends. We should do these things to give women the best care possible. <laughs> okay, what uh, what other besides diabetic retinopathy? What other diseases might be modulated by pregnancy? Yeah, so these I just wanted to touch on briefly. One is pituitary adenomas. These can grow during pregnancy um, and cause visual field changes, as you know. Um, So if someone does have a known pituitary adenoma, you should do some close ophthalmologic exams and follow-up and visual field monitoring. Um, Obviously, I don't want to tell you guys how to do your job, but some people would consider doing monthly uh, exams on these people. The other thing to consider is autoimmune diseases, specifically multiple sclerosis, because I think that um, can definitely affect the eye more compared to some other autoimmune diseases. Most autoimmune diseases can actually improve during pregnancy, not all, but, but many. And multiple sclerosis is one of those that tends to actually improve during pregnancy. However, we have observed that MS attacks can increase in the first few months postpartum, and optic neuritis attacks can also occur during this period. So making sure to follow up with your patients if they are recently postpartum. Mm, So I shouldn't prescribe pregnancy for multiple sclerosis as well, probably just glaucoma at this point. (laughs) I wouldn't say you should prescribe pregnancy for anything other than desire for pregnancy. Okay, well, I mean, I'm a doctor too. I can make my own decisions. <laughs> Any other diseases you want to talk about? Yeah, the the last one that I wanted to touch on is idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So as you are aware, with pregnancy, there can be some weight gain. And so that can definitely contribute to worsening idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So just something to consider because I think as an OB, I don't always think of IIH. And so, you know, maybe I would send someone to go see their ophthalmologist if they're having persistent visual problems um, and not having diagnosed worsening IIH. So certainly something to keep in mind. Yeah. Check out our IIH episode to learn more about the signs and symptoms to look for. Cool. Okay. So, I, I mean, it sounds like uh, those are most of the ocular diseases that, and obviously we're, this isn't comprehensive, but many of the ocular diseases that may be modulated by pregnancy that we should think about. Right. What about diseases of pregnancy that might affect the eye? Yeah. So I feel like I would be a pretty poor maternal fetal medicine fellow if I didn't mention preeclampsia at least once. So preeclampsia can actually cause visual changes and visual defects. So preeclampsia, just as a review for all you ophthalmologists from back from medical school, is um, diagnosed with blood pressures of greater than 140 over 90, though not necessarily sustained, with proteinuria in otherwise normal tensive women who are greater than 20 weeks in gestation. There are a lot of other criteria, but this is not an episode about preeclampsia as much as I would like it to be. With worsening preeclampsia, you can have a whole spectrum of disease going from just gestational hypertension to preeclampsia to severe preeclampsia to HELP syndrome, which is um, hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes and low platelets, and eclampsia, and even PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. And so with press and help and even eclampsia, you can get visual changes like blurred vision, photopsia, scotoma, diplopia, and even blindness, especially um, with press. And just, you know, actually just in the last couple months of my fellowship, we actually had a patient who had such severe preeclampsia. She was driving on the highway. One second she could see. And then the next second she described as her vision just going completely black because of cortical blindness from her press. Luckily, she had someone in the car with her. They were able to pull over. They got to the hospital. She's fine now. But certainly, that's something that can certainly cause ocular issues. 
the treatment here is to treat the preeclampsia. Um, and if they get to the point of having visual disturbances, you should really talk to the obstetrics team about when delivery is indicated because that really is the only cure for preeclampsia. I'm curious, with the patient you had with press, did they have encephalopathy? Um, they actually didn't. So their own, mm. well, their encephalopathy was the cortical blindness. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. We, I've seen, I think like two or three patients with press, mm-hmm. um, and they all were pretty encephalopathic. So, Interesting. In terms of like altered mental status is what I mean by that. So, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, it's good to know that it can happen in patients who are not obviously altered in terms of their like sensorium, uh, except for their vision, I guess. Right. Right. So, interesting. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, um, you know, the other couple of things that I wanted to talk on, talk about was Sheehan syndrome and certain um, vascular occlusive diseases. So Sheehan syndrome, or as you have told me, ophthalmologists call it pituitary apoplexy, um, which I had That's actually call it. oh, I actually hadn't heard that term. <laughs> apoplexy sounds like a very old timey term to me. Excuse me, I use the word <laughs> I use the term apoplectic like frequently in the clinic actually. <laughs> So anyway, Sheehan syndrome um, or pituitary apoplexy is caused by usually some type of massive hemorrhage that leads to decreased perfusion of the pituitary gland. Usually this will happen in the postpartum period if it happens at all, because that's usually, you know, when the woman would have massive blood loss. Um, Certain history to elicit from women who come in with this, you know, they might say, yeah, I just had a baby and they had to take me back to the OR. I lost like three liters of blood, et cetera. So what happens is that there can be swelling of the pituitary gland either due to a sudden infarct or hemorrhage, and this can lead to vision-threatening complications because of that enlargement and compression of the of the optic nerve. So um, certainly something that is is very relevant to you guys. Yeah, yeah. And one key to remember is that it's. I mean, the reason I like to remember is pituitary apoplexy is it's an apoplectic event, i.e., it's a sudden and. Um, you know, you know, anytime you see a patient with like a sudden headache, a sudden either diplopia, you know, some cranial nerve palsy and, you know, visual de- field defects consistent with some type of optic neuropathy, then you like really have to think about apoplexy and image appropriately. Yeah, definitely. And then kind of the last really scary thing that I'm going to talk about are vascular occlusive diseases. And so this includes things like retinal artery occlusion, retinal vein occlusion, um, due to the hypercoagulability of pregnancy. And that's not to say that every single woman who's pregnant is going to get this, but um, if a woman already has some type of thrombophilic condition, if they have other underlying disease like preeclampsia or TTP, and they're pregnant, that certainly puts them at much higher risk of having a thrombotic event. And one of that, those things could be a retinal artery occlusion. Do folks uh, like prophylactically anticoagulate people with like thermophilia, you know, some kind of thermophilia or TTP or something that's known? Absolutely. Um, there is a whole practice bulletin about this, and we actually talk about this in one of our episodes. So if you're interested, there is a great oh. Creagzerver coffee <laughs> episode, but it, it, it we did talk about it for like a full 20 to 30 minutes. So I don't think we have time to cover it today. <laughs> of course. I, no, and I listen to all your episodes, honey, so I would definitely remember <laughs> listening to that. So thank you for answering. I, I could answer my own question. Uh, moving on, I think here is a big uh, sore point for ophthalmologists is knowing what eye drops we can use during pregnancy. So, 
you know, I think the the one that I ran into fairly frequently as a resident is when can we dilate someone who's pregnant? Yeah, it's, it's not an easy question to answer, right? Because certainly we understand that there is concern that some of these medications may be absorbed systemically. And, you know, could there be some kind of harm to the baby or to the pregnancy itself? Could it cause miscarriage? You know, God forbid. So, of course, we understand that there is concern. Um, however, the basic principle in pregnancy is that if you think that you need to do a procedure or you need to do an exam or else the woman could have her health or her life be compromised because you're not doing the best exam or you're not doing the, a procedure that is life-saving, limb-saving, eye-saving, or health-saving, then you know you really should consider doing that exam, even though you do have to give some type of medication. And when you do give the medication, try and use the smallest dose possible. But the other thing that I do have to plug in here is that many medications just haven't been studied in pregnancy or they're only animal models. But really, don't withhold a medication unless there are absolute proven teratogenic effects just because someone is pregnant and you would otherwise use them and you think that that would be standard of care. If you have concerns, or have a risk-benefit conversation with your patient um, about why you want to do the exam, what the risks are to giving the medication, what the benefits are of doing the exam or doing the procedure. And if you um, have questions or concerns, you can always consult your friendly neighborhood OB-GYN or MFM. Okay. Well, so what about dilating drops? Yeah. So uh, I looked at four common mydriatics that Ben told me about, and I also just learned the word mydriatic. I didn't even know that there was a word for agents that dilate the eye. <laughs> That's what the cool kids call it, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I had no idea. Um, so the four meds that I looked at were tropicamide, cyclopentylate, atropine, and phenylephrine. And, you know, it just... It sounds like those are the four medications that you guys usually use. Um, am I right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So full disclosure here, none of these medications have been very well studied in pregnancy. I'll start with tropicamide. So tropicamide is a category C medication in pregnancy. Um, and if you're not familiar with the pregnancy categories, um, a brief overview is just that, you know, category A is that there are good human studies that show that there is benefit and not very much risk or teratogenic effects. Category B is, you know, likely little risk with lots of benefits, probably just animal studies. C is either inconclusive, meaning no good studies have been done, or maybe there have been animal studies that might show some type of risk. D is, you know, there is definitely risk of teratogenicity, but potentially there can be some benefits that could outweigh that risk. And then X is, of course, um, there's been shown teratogenicity and the um, benefits do not outweigh the risks. And so those are medications that you absolutely should not give in pregnancy. So tropicamide is category C. Overall, there haven't been any reports of teratogenic effects from topical use, and the incidence of adverse systemic effects with any anti-muscarinic ophthalmologic agent it was extremely low in the one study that I found. So really, if you need to use tropicamide, you can use it. If you need to use it to dilate someone to see in the back of their eye, this would be the agent that you could reach for. 
The next one is cyclopentylate, which is an anticholinergic agent. Again, not sure how much is actually systemically absorbed of this medication, but you can use this medication if you need to in pregnancy. Overall, anticholinergics um, used systemically, so you know, if you're thinking like Benadryl and stuff like that, they can decrease lactation. So if you're really worried mm. about systemic absorption in a lactating woman, in a pregnant woman, um, what you can do is you can hold pressure over the tear duct for a minute or more after administration of the um, medication to try and decrease that systemic absorption. Right. That's called a punctal occlusion for maybe the earlier residents or med students who haven't heard of it before. Um, the next couple of meds are atropine and phenylephrin. So atropine hasn't... Ha- there haven't been any studies that have shown teratogenic effects when exposed to ophthalmic atropine, but again, it's an anticholinergic, so systemic use can decrease lactation. And then the last one is phenylephrine. Full disclosure, most of the reports and studies that I found looked at systemic phenylephrine. Phenylephrine itself does cross the placenta if it's given orally or IV, and it is a vasoconstrictive medication. And so usually we really try and avoid systemic phenylephrine. You can think of like the medication Sudafed over the counter. We try not to prescribe it during pregnancy. I'm not really sure how much of this would translate to ophthalmic use. So if you can avoid it, meaning if you can use one of these other medications to get the amount of dilation that you need, you can try and avoid this medication if you can. But if you can't achieve adequate dilation to do a necessary procedure or exam, then I feel like a one-time use may be warranted. Thanks for that um, great review. Yeah, It's a pity there's not so much evidence on it. Right. Okay, let's talk about other eye drops now. Again, these are the juicy things we always think about. What about antibiotic eye drops? Which ones can we not use? So, you know, the usual ones that I feel like I hear from you, like erythromycin, ophthalmic tobramycin, ophthalmic gentamicin, polymyxin B, acyclovir, all of these are okay to use. The main things that I would caution are kind of um, systemic antibiotics that include aminoglycosides um, because this can cause fetal ototoxicity and nephro toxicity, and also to avoid systemic chloramphenicol, neomycin, and tetracycline. So kind of that's just like the basic rundown. But it sounds like most of the topical antibiotics that you guys use in ophthalmology are totally okay to use in pregnancy. Any thoughts on fluoroquinolones? Because we use those a lot. So those should be avoided if possible. So avoid fluoroquinolones. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Now here's like a big bugaboo. What about glaucoma medications? Yeah. So I looked up four common glaucoma medications. So these are bromonidine, timolol, dorzolamide, and latanoprost. Pretty good coverage, would you say? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously people know that there's cousins of each of these, like instead of like timolol, betalol, and whatnot, but, um, you know, we're talking about classes of medications. Yeah. So let's first talk about bromonidine. Um, So bromonidine is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist, and it is actually the only category B medication that we're going to talk about today. No evidence of risk in studies. There can be some systemic absorption. Um, There were some rat studies that did not show any adverse fetal effects um, at oral maternal doses that led to even maternal toxicity. So they use like super, super high doses, and there were no fetal adverse events. Um, There haven't been any studies to show that there are adverse effects to babies even if they do get exposure to it through breast milk. So if this is, you know, if you are starting a patient on their first medication ever for glaucoma and they're thinking about getting pregnant or they already are pregnant, this is probably the one that I would reach for first. And that's great. Like for board of view purpose for everyone to remember, this is a little confusing because with pregnancy, Bramondi is probably the best one to start with. 
like once the baby is born for small children, it's actually the worst one because it can cause CNS depression. So like once the baby's out, then don't put the permani in the baby's eyes for border view purposes to remember. Okay. What about the next one? Next glaucoma drop you want to talk about? So the next one I wanted to talk about was Timolol, which is a non-selective beta blocker. Overall, we do use beta blockers in patients who are pregnant. So for example, in patients who have high blood pressure, we sometimes prescribe labetalol. For patients who have heart disease, um, who may need to be on a beta blocker, they will often get metoprolol or propanolol. And so animal studies for timolol itself, as well as for other beta blockers, haven't really shown an increased risk of congenital malformation, and especially not if used in the eye. There is a small amount of systemic absorption, and there is some data to suggest that systemic use of beta blocker can possibly lead to fetal growth restriction. However, this data is clouded by the fact that, you know, for women who themselves are using beta blockers are more likely to have comorbid conditions such as high blood pressure or arrhythmias or heart conditions that they themselves can lead to fetal growth restriction. So overall, Timolol, I think, um, is still a very reasonable medication to reach for if you need to use it in pregnancy. Very good. The last two medications are dozolamide and latanoprost, and these are medications that I would consider avoiding if you can. So dorzolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Oral dorzolamide has been shown to interfere in embryo development in rabbit studies, and so this is a category C medication. There isn't a bunch of good data otherwise. So again, you know, try and avoid this medication if you can, since we have those two other medications that we talked about. But if it's the only medication that's going to work for that patient, I think it's reasonable to have a risk-benefit discussion with that patient. And if you have to use it, the lowest dose possible to achieve the results that you want. Mm-hmm. And then the last medication is latanoprost, which is a prostaglandin F2 alpha analog. And so kind of full disclosure here, certain systemic prostaglandins can be used as abortifactants or as methods to start labor. So carboprost is a very well-known prostaglandin F2 alpha that we actually use postpartum to get the uterus to contract so that they'll so that our patients will stop bleeding. So mm. while ophthalmic Latanoprost itself has not been shown to cause uh, these harmful effects. There is a theoretical risk of systemic absorption and therefore risk of miscarriage and premature labor. Again, not a bunch of, not a lot of good information about this. One Italian study with 10 pregnancies, so you know that's not a great hen or anything, showed that latanoprost exposure in the first trimester, um, one case ended in miscarriage and the remaining nine resulted in normal birth. And so if you look at, you know, data where approximately 20% to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage anyway in the first trimester, less than 10 weeks, um, you know, this is not really that compelling of data. Um, But again, since there are other glaucoma medications that we mentioned that are safer, try and avoid latanoprost if possible. But again, I think it's worth having a risk-benefit discussion with your patient if for some reason this is the only medication that is working for them. So just to summarize that that awesome review, it sounds like if you had to start someone on pressure-lowering drops, Mm -hmm. you'd start with bromonidine. Correct. Probably go to Timolol next if bromonidine by itself wasn't enough. And then probably dorzolamide third in terms of um, with a good risk-benefit discussion. Right. And then latanoprost probably last. Right, right. Out of the four. Yeah. And, and, you know, I certainly wouldn't have patients using latanoprost as like Latisse or something to like enhance their eyelashes during pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, the the hormone effects and everything will enhance your lashes already, right? 
I, I, Isn't that like I, make your hair grow <laughs> thicker and yeah. stuff? Yes. Yes. You're yeah. right. So I'll, I'll close my Latisse uh, prescribing doors to pregnant <laughs> women for, <laughs> for now. But can you get that? Like, I have to look it up. Can you just get that like over the counter, Latisse? No, I don't think so. I think it has to be prescribed. Yeah. Just so people know, Latisse is like dilute Lumigan basically or Bimatoprost, which is prescribed for cosmetic enhancement of eyelashes. Uh, so if, if you haven't heard of that before, my ophthalmology friends out there. Okay, now we covered glaucoma, uh, and as a retina fellow, I've been itching to ask, do you have any thoughts about intravitreal injection of anti-VEGFs like bevacizumab, also called Avastin? Yeah, so, you know, overall, the studies for bevacizumab, there haven't been a ton for intravitreal injection. Of course, there have been some studies and data looking at um, Avastin as a chemotherapy medication. Um, We know that systemic absorption does occur if you give it intravitreally. We know that Avastin, because it's a huge molecule, it's about 149 kilo daltons, doesn't cross the placenta, but um, because it has anti-VEGF effects, it can possibly cause issues with the placenta and can alter placental growth factor. So really, this is a medication that you should try and avoid in pregnancy if possible, especially in that first trimester um, when kind of things are developing. If you have to use this medication, again, it should be a risk-benefit conversation with the patient um, about use. Overall, in terms of studies itself, there was a case series, again, of four women, again, that N is not very great, treated with intravitreous bevacizumab, and all the children that were produced from those pregnancies were normal at 11 to 18 months of life. So I would say if you definitely need to give someone treatment for diabetic retinopathy, think about, you know, doing laser therapy, think about intravitreal corticosteroid injection, and really um, try to reach for the Avastin last if possible. Okay. What about, you know, this is more something that came for me in residency, but what if someone had, you know, what if you have to image someone, especially with like CT imaging during pregnancy, you know, I want to get a CT orbit for some reason while they're pregnant. Is that just a no-go? Should I just not image? No. Um, I mean, again, I think the biggest thing about pregnancy that, and I hope that the you know listeners take away from listening to this podcast, is that pregnant women are still people um, and that we should give oh. them the best care possible and not just think of them as vessels for their fetus, right? Um, oh. Because if something is going to harm mom's life, harm mom's health, harm mom's sight, limb, all of those things, that is, of course, going to impact the health of her baby or her ability to care for that baby afterwards. So in terms of imaging in pregnancy, ACOG, the American College of of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, says to use the ALARA principle, which is as low as reasonably achievable for imaging with radiation. Risk of radiation exposure on the developing fetus really depends on the dose of radiation and the gestational age at which exposure occurs. So really, if you even look at the most conservative studies, the effect that you have to achieve to cause any type of harm at any time during the pregnancy would be about 50 milligrays. And so we'll talk a little bit about certain images, certain imaging modalities and how much radiation they uh, they have, but you'll see very quickly that many radiographic studies like chest x-rays and things like that don't come anywhere near that amount of radiation. So for a brief review, 
for instance, if there is an exposure of 50 to 100 milligrams of radiation prior to implantation, so in that zero to two weeks after fertilization, there's generally an all or none effect, meaning that either the pregnancy will miscarry or it will not. During organogenesis, between two to eight weeks post-fertilization is when there can be congenital anomalies or growth restriction that can occur from radiation. Uh, But really, the cumulative dosing of radiation needed to cause a lot of congenital anomalies or growth restriction would be about 200 to 250 milligrays. And then finally, in terms of the risk of severe intellectual deficit or microcephaly is more prominent around 8 to 15 weeks with doses between 60 to 300 milligrays. So I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about like like a head or neck CT or a chest x-ray or even like a CT PE that we would get for our patients. So a head or neck CT overall in terms of fetal radiation doses is very, very low. It's going to be less than 0.01 milligrays um, that the fetus is actually going to see. So really pretty negligible. A chest x-ray two view is also going to be less than 0.01 milligrays. And then, you know, getting a CTPE is going to be somewhere between 0.01 to 0.66 milligrays. The ones where we start to get more concerned would be like getting a full-on abdominal pelvic CT scan where you could get pretty high doses of radiation. But if you have a pregnant woman who absolutely needs to get a CT abdomen pelvis for some reason, you can also have um, the radiology technicians turn the um, radiation down a little bit to try and get uh, the images that they need. What about for a CT head? What's the dosing for CT head? So CT head, we said, was less than 0.01. And then you said it it takes like 60 or so milligrays to or right. start causing problems. You know, the, and like I said, you know, even if we're looking really conservatively, like 50 milligrays is what we like need 50. to be looking at. And it's point, it delivers 0.01. Correct. So <laughs> you have to do quite a few head CTs. Right. You'd have to like live in a head CT for a while before it would cause a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. What about MRI? Is there any contraindication for MRI? No. So um, MRI, you can absolutely do an MRI in pregnancy. Um Period. Okay. Okay. And now let's talk about ophthalmic imaging. You know, we'll skip things like OCT and fundus photography because the beauty of things like OCT is it just uses light. And uh, last I checked, light is not bad for mom. But let's talk about what about fluorescein angiography? Yeah. Well, so shockingly, fluorescein is not well studied in pregnancy, just like oh, wow. everything else we talked about. So it is a category C medication. There are very limited studies. Um, it's not expected to increase the risk of congenital anomalies in humans. The one report, it was not controlled for. It was really just an observation of 105 women who were exposed to fluorescein at some time during their pregnancy did not show any increased a baseline risk of congenital anomalies or fetal growth restriction. In animal experiments, it hasn't been found to be embryotoxic or teratogenic, even when given at high doses. But the interesting thing is that I did find a study that showed definitively that it does cross the placenta. I can't remember exactly why, but there was someone who actually got an amniocentesis several days after they um, had a fluorescein angiography, and they detected what? fluorescein in the amniotic fluid. So it certainly does ca- do cross the placenta. So certainly the baby is seeing the fluorescein. And we do know that fluorescein has, it sounds like, you know, can stick around for a while in pregnancy. So there might be some concern for that. Again, I think 
it's very much a risk-benefit conversation with your patient um, to tell them the truth that we don't really know very much about the medication. And from the studies that we have, you know, it doesn't seem like it causes any damage, but it does cross the placenta and we simply don't know. So if you absolutely need to get fluorescein angiography to get a better exam in order to treat this patient, um, you know, I think it's worth having that conversation. For the retinomaniacs out there, I'll let you decide whether or not finding fluorescein in amniotic fluid is evidence of angiographic leakage or pooling. <laughs> Faye's not I don't laughing. know what that means. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, Faye, I promise you, uh, my, my retina buddies out there are, are going to find that really funny. Please find that funny. I, I think it's fun. okay. This is what you um, say about all your jokes. Okay, that's that's fluorescein. I guess the last thing that I want to cover. So I, I imagine, based on the discussion you told me before about the physiology of pregnancy with relation to intubation and general anesthesia, that ideally, if it's an elective surgery, that it waits till after pregnancy. Absolutely. So examples of that are definitely like definitely cataract surgery. I mean, you're not going to get an accurate lens uh, measurement for um, cataract surgery and definitely things like LASIK that is like definitely a board question that you can get asked is you know what's a contraindication to LASIK and a strict contraindication is pregnancy but sometimes you know a patient will need urgent surgery you know within a month sometimes even sooner than that so if if, let's say I find a patient with a retinal detachment and need to get surgery within whatever period of time and you told me that uh, mothers are are people, you said, <laughs> or human beings. Yeah. So I should treat them as such. Okay. Yeah. Then what needs to happen to get that woman to surgery? So I think you're not gonna you're gonna get tired of me saying this, but again, it's a risk benefit discussion with your patient about surgery. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Try not to do elective surgery during pregnancy, but. Again, no life-saving, limb-saving, sight-saving surgery should be withheld just because a patient is pregnant. So if you have like a MAC on retinal detachment and that person- I can't tell you, this isn't in our script or anything that Faye knows what a MAC on means with retinal attachments. I can't. I really, really don't talk about work with that, that much. I'm so proud of you. Continue. I'm oh, sorry. thank so you. Proud. You you talk about this a lot, actually. Oh my god! But <laughs> if you if you have something like this and this patient needs urgent surgery to save her sight, you should get that person to surgery. You need to talk to your anesthesiologist. As far as I'm concerned. From what you've told me, people don't need to be intubated for this type of surgery. So yeah, we can usually do a local block. Absolutely, that person should have surgery. Let's say that you have a patient who has a surgery that doesn't have to happen within, you know, a couple of days or, or or whatnot, but should happen within, if you have a couple of weeks of leeway, but not like nine months of leeway, is there an optimal time period for one to have surgery? And if you send a patient to have surgery, what kind of things will their OB or their maternal fetal medicine specialist look for to help kind of optimize their care during and after surgery? Yeah. So usually we say that the best time to have surgery in pregnancy is the second trimester. And that's because you don't have as much of an increased risk of spontaneous abortion um, or exposure of a first trimester fetus to anesthetic agents. Um, I think this is potentially less applicable uh, to to eye surgery um, it, because it sounds like you guys don't use as much general anesthesia and things like that. But certainly if it's a procedure that needs general anesthesia, we would try and recommend second trimester because it's going to be easier to intubate that patient, to ventilate that patient. Um, and also you're potentially decreasing the risk of spontaneous abortion. 
Is there a trimester cutoff for when a patient can lay flat on their back in terms of IVC compression? That's a really great. Um, that's a really great question. I would say that once the uterus passes, the fundus of the uterus passes the umbilicus, that woman should be placed with a um, a, a left lateral tilt to so that the uterus does not compress the IVC. Great question. How many weeks? About 20. I mean, I know this answer to this, but <laughs> if you could tell the audience the answer is how many weeks is approximately reaching level of the umbilicus? So about 20. Okay. So, so if you are pretty sure you don't need general anesthesia and you need your patient to lay flat, which is basically all eye surgeries, then ideally you try to get them to the OR before 20 weeks. Is that a reasonable statement? I think that, I think that's definitely reasonable, especially if you need them to, to lay flat. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, the other things to talk to their OB about, if you're using any type of general anesthesia, so not necessary if you're just giving like topical anesthetics, but if you're giving general anesthesia of any kind, it's usually prudent to get a fetal heart rate before the surgery and then to ask your OB colleagues to come and get another fetal heart rate after the surgery. Like immediately after the surgery or like post-op day two or? Uh, immediately after the surgery. So, you know, it doesn't have to be like the second that you stop surgery, but sh- should be when they're in the recovery area, when they're or in like the, the PACU. Area. Yeah. Yeah. So normally we would just get a fetal heart rate with a Doppler or with an ultrasound when the fetus is not yet viable. So usually less than 24 weeks. And then usually past 24 weeks or in the third trimester, usually we would actually come and do um, what's called a non-stress test. So actually putting the baby on the monitor for 20 minutes before and then again after the surgery if they undergo general anesthesia. Good to know. Yeah, I think even if we're not going to be the ones managing it, having an idea of what becomes involved when you try to operate on a pregnant woman is like, it's just nice to know the context of how much extra stuff has to happen. Right. Okay. Now I I feel like you can practice um, OB-GYN. I'm going to hang up my (laughs) shingle. This is a very educational talk. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give us like a little like a conclusion to our lovely discussion? Sure. So kind of the big three points to take away is one, it's always a risk-benefit discussion with your patient. And that's not just with patients who are pregnant. It's everybody, right? Two, don't hold back therapy for your patient just because they're pregnant. Many patients have different thresholds of risk and benefit that they are willing to accept. And so there may be some patients who say, yeah, I would never want surgery MII. Please give me the anti-VEGF agent, even though we know the evidence behind that versus getting laser. So it's always worth it to talk to your patients about that. And then last but not least, if you have questions or concerns um, or you want some help counseling your patient about whatever therapy it is that you want to try and um, give them, um, you can always consult your friendly neighborhood OB or maternal fetal medicine specialist um, if you have questions. Thank you, Faye. Thanks for coming on of course. and answering your questions. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with number four. And if you appreciated Faye coming on and spending her time to talk about these, you know, subspecialty things outside of any, I think, our listeners' field, then either check out her podcast, Creogs for Coffee, or recommend it to an obstetrics friend. You can find it anywhere that you can find this podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.